You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we have S.C. Moadi, who is a technology visionary and investor. She is the founding partner of Mighty Capital, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm, and Products That Count, one of the largest and certainly the most influential network of product managers in the world. She's award-winning best-selling author and is frequently featured in Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review, and NPR. On today's show, we talk about, other than money, what value can venture capitalists bring to the deal? What is considered a good product? What are common areas of negotiation between entrepreneurs and venture capitalists? How is it different for a venture capitalist to work with an early stage company versus a later or pre-IPO stage company? And some exciting changes in tech to look forward to in the future. This and much more today's episode. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Essie, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Now, Essie, you have an amazing background and I mean, I just found out that you're a pretty popular singer in a band here, but you're also a VC in the Valley. Could you tell me a little bit about your background that has led you up to this point? Yeah, for sure. I grew up in Paris. That's where I was born and raised and then moved here close to 20 years ago. Uh, I'm an engineer. I got a, an MBA at Stanford and then spent a dozen years building products and companies. Um, I uh, worked for companies like uh, Nokia, Facebook, Electronic Arts. And then companies of my own. And after I sold my last company, spent a couple of years at Facebook, left Facebook because I was invited to write a book on what makes a great product. And that's sort of what started the current chapter of my life. Because as I was writing this book, I realized that every product leader, every peer of mine at the time had a, an interesting perspective to share on what makes a great product. And so I started what today is one of the largest networks of product managers in the world called Products That Count. We reach close to 300,000 product managers. And these product managers, they're all innovators. So as they were, you know, joining, participating, getting involved in that network, they were sending us really cool startups. We were doing angel investing, but it became such a big opportunity that we spun out a venture capital firm a few years ago, Mighty Capital. And that's how I got to where I am today, which is run this VC firm. So when a company comes to you, what's kind of all the steps that take place from that first meeting to when they might get a check? What are all those middle things that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, we're a very traditional investors, so we're not going to be writing a check on the first meeting. We're super picky. We've only invested in the very best <laughs> companies. We have four IPO candidates in our portfolio. We have Airbnb, DigitalOcean, Amplitude. But when we come into a company, then we put everything we have behind it, including the network. And so to get a check, it's not an easy thing. I'm not going to lie to you. And our companies, when they're in there, they love it. But the process is the process. So we see about 4,000 decks a year. We meet in person with 400 companies. Then we do due diligence on maybe 40 and we invest in less than 10. But when we decide to invest, like I said, where we come in and the kind of value we bring 
is really, you know, I like to say, having been a founder myself, we redefine what it means to be founder friendly because we help our CEOs sell. Some of them have generated millions of dollars in revenue from having access to our product manager audience. We help them hire. Uh, some of them have been able to attract talent that's like one in five in the world, right? So sophisticated. So that's really valuable. And then thirdly, we help them fundraise and get their company acquired because a chief product officer or a VP of product, most of whom are part of our network, very often they buy companies, right? They look at their product uh, portfolio, they look at where the gaps are, build versus buy, and then they make a, an M&A decision. And so we really help our companies on an operational level by accelerating sales, hiring, and fundraising. So in this whole process, what are some of the questions that the startup should be asking or come up in conversation during this extensive, extensive due diligence? I recommend that you ask these questions to every single investor because the last thing you want is what I call dumb money, right? You want smart money and smart money is sophisticated. And so it's going to come after it gets to know you and it understands how great of a company you are. So questions that you want to ask your investors, what value are you going to be delivering besides the check size? You know, you're going to give me money. That's great. But what else are you going to bring me? Because right now, most entrepreneurs who have great companies know that it's easy to get money. It's hard to get smart money, but it's easy to get any kind of money. There's a lot of money out there. So smart money, they will come with value. An example is our value, right? The value of this ecosystem of product managers, which helps sell, helps hire, helps fundraise. Another example of value is something that we look at as well, which is, for example, governance. Like, are you going to bring a great partner, somebody who has been on the board of amazing companies, who has connections at this very senior level, that's going to help take your company to a completely different dimension. So governance is a huge value that investors can bring. And then there are more examples of value. For example, if you're a blockchain company, well, I would say like you want to look for an investor that's going to bring you way more than just the money that's going to bring you value from the ecosystem of the blockchain. So then how can a startup put a valuation on all these extra services when they're sitting down and deciding on which VC to take capital from? So what I would say is you want to think about like, what do I need to get to the next level? And I'm going to oversimplify, but you'll get my point. If you're very, very early stage, you don't really have a product yet, you don't really have customers, you want people who are going to help you understand who to sell your product to, understand what product to build. Basically, they're going to help you find product market fit. So you want to bring investors who either have a lot of experience at that super early stage, who help bring products to market, or you want to have investors who have a network of people who can help you do that. Once you launch your product and you have some successes, you're in a different category of companies. You're in the category of companies that are scaling. And so the kind of investor you want to bring at that point are investors who are going to be helping you accelerate your growth. So you want to bring people who will bring you a, a network of customers, people who will bring you a network of potential hires, people who will bring you checks that will help you go faster and grow bigger. And then 
at the sort of a later stage, the kinds of investors you want are investors who are going to help you generate a huge exit so that, you know, you make it big. I mean, I know we do things we do for much more than money. We do it for you know, changing the world, for building our own you know, self-confidence, being recognized. But at the end of the day, success is, is success, right? So you're going to, at that stage, you want to bring investors who are going to help you generate that amazing exit. So either they have a ton of experience taking companies public, or they have a lot of connections with potential acquirers at large companies that will justify you to pay big money for all the hard work you've put in building your company. So you see how, you know, it's very simplified, as I say, and every situation is different, but at different stages of a company, you bring different types of investors. And then in different industries, you bring different types of investors. So it's really sort of a this matchmaking game to find the right investors, the right smart money for you. And it's difficult to do because there isn't a very transparent marketplace to find these investors. Some people are attempting to build that like an angel list and so on and so forth. But to be honest, like there isn't a very transparent marketplace for early stage investing. So say there's a perfect match. You're the startup. The VC likes your company. You like the VC. You could tell that they're going to bring a lot of value. What are some of the talks or terms or that term sheet, that contract that's negotiated back and forth? What are some of the areas that seem to come up the most? Yeah, this is a really important question. And again, I'm going to use a super simplified example. So my husband loves to race motorcycles. He races Ducati motorcycles. And so when he goes into a dealership, he looks at all these new bikes and there's like this little sticker on the windshield, right? That's the price of the bike. And then he sits down with the salesperson and he comes out of it with the bike and the price of the bike is way, way lower than the price he actually is paying, right? Because he's buying maintenance, maybe he's financing the bike, he's buying some regular tire changes, some insurance, whatever, right? So there's a total cost of ownership of the bike that everybody knows is much, much higher than the list price of the bike. Well, it's exactly the same thing with terms. So a lot of entrepreneurs will get very hung up on their valuation, which is the list price, and they will ignore the terms, which makes the total cost of ownership. And my recommendation is don't do that. Don't get fixated on valuation. What really matters is the total cost of ownership. That's the first thing, like terms matter. And then the second thing is you're entering a relationship that's going to be most likely your longest, most accelerating or most difficult relationship, depending on how you look at it. So it's not a transaction. It's a long-term relationship. It's like 10 years. So when you come into this relationship, come at it with the idea that you want something fair. Your investors also, most likely, if they're sophisticated, they want something fair because they know that if they catch you at the first round, you'll catch them at the second and vice versa, and it will not lead to a good long-term relationship. So Come at it with a very collaborative approach of what is fair, and you'll find that you're building a very long relationship and important because a downturn is coming. And in a downturn, you don't want to find yourself in a situation where, well, you need a little bit of extra money, you need extra support from your existing investors, and the relationship is so soured that they are not going to back you up. So come at the table with a very open attitude of, we want something fair for everybody. 
SC, when you're looking at a company, what do you like to see in a company or for to be maybe part of your portfolio one day? Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. We're looking for a company that has already found product market fit. So they're in that second stage of growth that I was describing earlier. And they have a very, very strong leadership team. For us, the team is super important and a clear go-to-market strategy. Now that's at the high level. So if you're an entrepreneur, you run a company, you already have, say, like six, 10 customers, they're happy, and you're looking to go from kind of good to great, you want to accelerate your growth, we're perfect fit for you. And we'll add a lot of value through those 300,000 product managers, whether it's for the purpose of selling or hiring or some other things. Now, at a more detailed level, right, when we go into our diligence, this is how we go about it. We look at what I call the entrepreneur dream story. And it goes like this. We are a unique team. Like, tell us what makes your team unique. Solving a big and hard problem. Uh, Big and hard as in show us the numbers, but also make us feel the problem emotionally. Like, why is it so painful? (laughs) Solving a big and hard problem with a sustainably differentiated solution. What do I mean by sustainably differentiated? Well, when you start to get traction with your product, Your big competitors and your small competitors are both going to copy exactly what you're doing. How do you still win in a situation like this? And we monetize our solution fairly. Like again, this idea of fairness, if you are fair to your customers, you will keep them. If not, like you will have trouble and churn. So we monetize it fairly. And as a result of that, we have very promising financials. But to get there, we need money. And that's, you know, you're asked to us. But we plan to return that money and much more in a reasonable time frame. So that entrepreneur story, it's a very simple story, right? It's very, again, simplified, but you get the idea, right? It answers some of the key questions that we as investors are looking for in, in any company. Now, if you're able to articulate that story to us, then we're becoming really, really interested in the opportunity and we'll do a due diligence. Our due diligence process is meant to understand whether we can have a long-term relationship with you. We'll have multiple touch points. We'll ask you some questions about your product and and traction, your team, your financials, the fit with us, how you see us working together. And then we'll talk to your other investors, to some customers, some of your employees. We'll do a side visit. And this really is meant for us to understand, like, can we work with that team? And then once we have conviction that This is a a great business, a great team at large, not just the CEO, but also, like I said, investors, customers, employees, then we'll be very interested to come to the table and negotiate a a great deal for us and for you. You talked a couple of times about product market fit. Can you talk a little bit about go to market, the strategies for companies and that have identified a good product market fit? Yeah. So this is... um, a really interesting, great question because I say product market fit and then I have a whole talk on product market fit is a myth. And what I mean by that is this, when you're in the early stages of building a company, you get, you know, six, seven, 10 customers and you're like, yes, I found product market fit. I have a group of people who are willing to pay money for the service that I offer. And immediately when you reach that magical, you know, state of product market fit, what will happen is your next customer will have a requirement that will make your first customer unhappy, right? 
So you're going to lose product market fit the minute you reach it. You're going to have to regain it. And you get into that mindset of there is no such thing as product market fit. I'm never at this magical state of product market fit. In fact, there's like, I say there's 50 shades of product market fit. And it's true because you never are done building your product. In fact, your product and your go-to-market are always going hand in hand. And this is more and more true, first of all, because of the phenomenon, the process that I described, but also because so much of what we build now is like, think mobile products, is like embedded, like the product and the go-to-market is the same thing. When you are building a a new service, you have a, a mobile app to whatever, manage inventory, Well, your go-to-market is probably to get people to convert from their phone because that's what they use all the time and sign up for your product. And so the product is the channel uh, in so many ways. So your portfolio has companies from early stage to pre-IPO. How is it working with each of these companies considering how many different stages they're at? Yeah, that's one of the most difficult and the most satisfying part of being a a venture capitalist. constant context switching. So I'll be talking about, you know, an exit strategy and hiring an investment banker for an M&A. And then I'll be talking about getting your first customers or hiring your first salesperson, all of that within the span of 10 minutes. It's awesome. But it's also, I will tell you as a serial entrepreneur, it's actually one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. And there's this myth that, oh, venture capitalists, they sit on the beach and they have a great lifestyle. Like, for example, when I tell an entrepreneur, hey, you know, I can't meet this week because I'm traveling, but we can meet next week. They're like, oh, enjoy your vacation. Like, dude, I'm working six days a week. Like, this is a really tough job. And, you know, I'm also an entrepreneur because I started and founded Mighty Capital. So in a way, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur who invests in other entrepreneurs. But that context switching is really amazing, but it's really tough. What about one of these companies in your portfolio that are about to go IPO? What's that like for the VC firm itself? What's kind of the preparation or the process? How does that feel? Well, I'll tell you, like the companies at later stage are easier because by then they have a team that can drive a lot of the um, execution. And so in the case of uh, our upcoming IPO, Airbnb, Frankly, we don't have a very big role in the preparation to the IPO. So most funds have a term life to them. Your fund, a lot of the companies are about to go IPO. What happens in a situation where maybe there's not that exit, but yet the length, that time of the fund, it's coming close to to ending? Yeah, these are really difficult situations. And they're unfortunate because if a company has survived for this long, then there is something to it. I always tell entrepreneurs, like there are so many ups and downs, like if you're alive yet another day, this is something to celebrate. So if you've been a company that's been alive for you know, the length of a fund, that's like seven, 10 years, and you're still working it, first of all, congratulations to you because that takes so much grit. And then if you're in a position where you're not very close to an exit, you're correct. Investors may start to put pressure on you. So there are different things that can be done because nobody likes to pressure a company for an exit before it's really time because it will dramatically impact the returns. So there are ways that venture firm can extend the length of the fund by one year, two years, three years. These are you know, subject to approval by their own investors and such. That's one way. And then you know, other things, they can 
maybe, you know, venture capitalist firms raise multiple funds. So one fund may roll into another, although that's, uh, again, you know, kind of a complicated uh, situation. Anyway, so the decision is rarely going to be, we're just going to cut ties with the company or right off the investment. It's often a you know, case by case, but there are different ways that venture capitalists can continue to support the companies. It's hard to do and it's unpleasant, which is why we don't really like to do it. What about kind of the opposite situation where a company's in hyper growth, but yet the fun time is about to end, but the LPs and everyone wants to stay in for that extra two, three, four years? Yeah. So there are different ways to approach that. Like I said, you know, you can extend the length of the life of the fund. In situations like that, everybody will say, of course, extend it, right? As opposed to the more difficult situation where it's like, well, you know, should we extend it? And so when there's an IPO on the docket, of course, everybody wants to extend. Now, if the company takes even longer than extensions that are possible, or maybe it needs to raise additional capital and the fund has run out of capital, generally, like there will be mechanism where the fund will offer to their own investors opportunities to continue investing in the company as part of their allocation. You know, these end of life issues, they're difficult, mainly when you don't have a clear winner. But when you have a clear winner, everybody's still on the same side of the table saying, let's just keep going. Right now in the venture community, what's kind of the thoughts of all these companies postponing their IPOs till they get these bigger, bigger valuations. I mean, 20 years ago, Amazon would go public. I'm, I'm just top of my head, three, $400 million valuation, whereas now it's $10 billion they're waiting for. Yeah. So, you know, this whole mega fund and unicorn trend of the last few years, I actually will tell you, I love it because it's my opportunity. <laughs> you know, their size is my opportunity. What I'm observing is venture capital is going through a very typical innovator dilemma which is, you know, I need to keep getting bigger if I want to survive, knowing that getting bigger is going to kill your returns and therefore is actually going to kill your firm. And it's very similar to, you know, 10 years ago when the iPhone launched, I was working for Nokia at the time. And Nokia was all about like, we need to have better resolution camera if we want to, you know, win this market. And Apple came in and said, F that, people don't want better resolution camera. They want an app store and music and internet, and they completely changed the game. Well, in venture capital, I think the same thing's happening where all the big firms are like, oh, I need to get bigger if I want to continue to be better. And we're saying, no, you need to be different. You need to offer value that's way beyond your check size. Because at the end of the day, when everybody has money, money is no longer a differentiator. And therefore, how do you continue to offer value to your portfolio company? One of the biggest adjustments for me to go from tech to investing was exactly that. You know, when you're in tech, everything you build is completely unique. Your product has slightly better performance than the competitor or has this feature that the others do not offer or what have you. Everything is completely unique. But when you're an investor, you're going to an entrepreneur, you're like, hey, you should really take my dollar because uh, well, it's green, uh, <laughs> whatever. Like your dollar is the same as everybody else except if you add value. So can you tell a couple of stories of some of your companies, not necessarily in your portfolio, but if you'd like to, just how you've worked with them and just some stories of maybe some hardships that they face that they've overcome? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you the story of you know, one of our portfolio companies. 
who has worked with us and known us for many years is Amplitude. They started a few years ago doing some really awesome analytics for a bunch of customers. And the way that they got to know us and we got to know them is they attended some of our products that count events. I mentioned to you, we run about 100 events a year. So they came to the events and the founder was there at the time, very small company. He did shout out like, hey, guys, I'm growing. I'm excited. I'm hiring. I'm looking for testers and users. And he started to grow this way, became a fan of products that count and started sponsoring some events. And then as he was growing, he said, well, I need to take that relationship to a strategic level. And so that's when he asked us to invest in his company. So how we work with them? Well, we invite them to some of our executive events. So we put them in front of 40 potential customers every few months. That's so much more efficient, so much more scalable for them than if I was going to, you know, write an intro email here and there. It's very, very scalable. That's one example. Another example, I'll pick an example of a company that's actually not in our portfolio. I wish we had invested at the time. We went another way. Maybe it's part of my shadow portfolio or my non-portfolio. It's a company that has a really interesting value proposition. They say, well, you know, you have a subscription to Netflix, uh, one to Hulu, one to Amazon Prime, whatever. So when you want to watch a movie, you go here, you go to Netflix. Like, oh, they're not on Netflix. Okay, let me go. Like, Oh, they're not on Hulu. Oh, okay, they're on Amazon Prime. By the time you figure out which movie to watch, you spend like 20, 25 minutes if it's not just you trying to watch a movie, but oh no, I don't want to watch that movie. Let's watch another one. What they do is they have a single platform that lets you just find the movie you want to watch on the right platform. They have great team, great traction, great monetization. We met them again through products that can, through the product measure network. And at the time they were very early. And they were still looking for that product market fit. They were still looking for that product offering. So what we did is we connected them to some really senior product executives at Netflix and Disney and others. And they've been able through these advisors to really build an amazing product. They raised a, a big round a couple of years ago from August Capital. And we're still in contact, right? We're still helping them. The fact that they're not in the portfolio doesn't mean that we're going to completely ignore them because they're a great group of people, great company. There's another company in every entrepreneur, right? So maybe their next company will be lucky to be an investor. So what really excites you about the future, the next few years in tech in the Valley? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because the way I think about it is in terms of platforms of data. So right now we're still building pretty much everything that makes it out, makes it through on top of the mobile data, body of data. So I define it as everything that's outside of us. But right now what we're seeing is there's a ton of great innovation built on top of the genomics body of data. And I use genomics very loosely. It's basically everything inside of us. So think of it as, of course, our genome, but also like our, our dental footprint or our eyesight, you know, our fingerprints, anything that is inside of us. And if you apply the technologies that have been developed on top of the mobile body of data, to the genomics body of data, you get some incredible innovations. We have some in our portfolio, like Fabric Genomics, whose co-founder is the founder of Illumina, and a few others. And so that's something that I see, you know, really emerge now. And then the third body of data, which I think is too early, but is very promising, is the blockchain body of data. And this body of data is going to capture, I believe, every information about 
companies, contract, financing. So it's a business body of data. And if you think about it, like you were asking me earlier, like, oh, funds have these constraints about like their lengths and their setup and IPO and windows. And this is just really market inefficiencies. Well, if you were going to put all the shares, all the equity of every company on a blockchain and you say, hey, rather than go public, like, why don't you buy a little piece of my equity here on this blockchain? Basically, what you do is you eliminate all of that friction. You eliminate the IPO process. You eliminate the M&A process. You eliminate the constraints of like fund, liquidity, what have you. You basically are able to buy small pieces of every company on the planet pretty much anytime, right? And so that's going to take a long time to build. It's really not ready for prime time, but, but I think it's a very exciting opportunity for the next, whatever, 10 years or so. And SC, if anyone wants to find out more information about you and Mighty Capital, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah, so obviously you can go to our website, mighty.capital, no.com, mighty.capital, or you can email me, my email, sc at mighty.capital. Great. We'll have all that information in the show notes. I also want to thank CJ Terrell, who made the introduction that allowed this interview to happen. And also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share in your network. Please write a review on iTunes, whatever platform you are listening it on. And Essie, we look forward to getting you back on the show in the future. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.